Amen. Most of you, like myself, have been through several elections. In fact, I was counting. Probably I've been through about 24 national elections and about 12 presidential elections. But it seems to me as I've gotten older and some of the things that I hear over the years, it seems like people are very uptight and angry and fearful. Um, and I don't know if it's because we've become so polarized in our culture and uh, so many things that are going on and people almost seem scared and angry and rebellious and even revolting. In fact, we even saw it a few months, about a month ago, over a month and a half ago, how the people stormed the Capitol and all that craziness that went on. And it's interesting that, you know, how do we as Christians view government? How do we deal with the government? And today is a passage that's been very interesting for me as we're going through this book of 1 Peter because there's some quality stuff in here that we need to hear. And I love the Word of God that you do it systematically because even though uh, it, it, it hits on it all the time, something that really resonates in our culture. And today this hits it right on the square on the head. Because how do we as Christians, how are we to be as good citizens when maybe there's we're not always in agreement with our government or with the people that are in government. And as we read this, we got to understand the context in which this is at. You know, it's important for understanding that in 44 AD, when between 44 AD and the late, probably in the 70s when this was written, Peter was really speaking to Christians here who were in an ugly time of government, especially with Rome. What we see is that in 44 AD, Claudius was the, basically the emperor. And his niece, Agrippina, she was an ambitious young woman who poisoned two husbands. And now she wanted her biological uncle to adopt her son and marry her and divorce his wife. And she was so ambitious that um, Claudius did that. And he had his own biological son who was a Britannicus that was due to, to serve. But because of her strength and power and influence on him, she got him to be pushed behind and that Nero, her son, would become the heir apparent to the throne. And as soon as that happened, she poisoned Claudius. She killed him. Now, I don't know what he was thinking when he married her because she had already poisoned too. But at 17 years old then, he became Roman emperor. Nero did. And what was amazing that he was known for his wickedness and his ruthlessness and how deprived he was. In fact, the historian Sodasus tell us that Nero then plotted to kill with his mother, Britannicus, who was Claudius's son, to make sure that he wouldn't cause any of a problem with um, his becoming the new emperor. And Nero also, um, what happened was, is that Nero got tired of his mother. And at 21, he tried to kill her four times. 
He tried three times by poisoning her, but she was a pro at that, and so she was not able to. And then he tried to sink her in a, in a little boat accident and tried to drown her, but she swam to shore. And so he got so angry that what he did is while she was sleeping, he sent two assassins in to kill his mother and beat her to death. And uh, he became then the emperor. And one of the things that happened was oftentimes he liked to know himself as this great performer. He liked to sing. Now, we've heard that the old saying that Nero fiddled why Rome burned. But that's not true because the fiddle was not made until the 17th century. But what he did do is he sang. And what he was trying to do is eliminate and clean out Rome so he could build this place for himself. And one day he decided that he was going to take it all in, in one soup. And for nine days, Rome burned. But what he did was he also blamed the Christians for it. And he said, yeah, I couldn't have done it because I was performing. And, and anybody who came to his performances were not allowed to leave. And if they did leave, they were killed. And so he was performing the night when the fires were set. And those fires stayed on for nine days and it burned down all of Rome. And then he started to rebuild it. Well, what happened with him was is that after um, about eight years of it um, in 68 AD, the Senate was tired of his shenanigans and they wound up killing him. But before he did, he was so ruthless. And we talked about some of the things he did. He put people in, in skins of animals and he would watch them be eaten by dogs. Sometimes he would light them on fire to uh, make a beautiful um, garden when he was having people over. And they would be burning Christians at the stake um, while he was having his garden party. But he also delighted in racing his chariot. And one of the things he did with his racing of his chariot, that he would do it and he'd have these Christians again on these poles lit up and they would lit up um, his racetrack so that he could run around on his chariot naked, making fun of and laughing at the Christians who were suffering and dying in their agonies while he was doing that. Well, they finally got tired of him. And at 31 years old, before they came to kill him, he committed suicide in order. But it's during that time of ruthlessness and pain for the Christians being accused of burning Rome that Peter writes these things. And it's challenging for us and for me especially, especially when we sometimes come into a government that maybe we're not too thrilled about. Or we feel that their value system is totally different than ours. And what Peter up to this point has said, remember whose you are as you're being persecuted. Remember you're special in God's sight. And that he's got a purpose and a plan for you. And that you are his chosen vessel, saved by him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that your behavior is to be a witness to what the world sees. And it's at that point we see how last week we talked about how he encouraged them and said, you're the chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is what the church is. This is who we are. And that we're to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness. And this is the way we proclaim it. The way we look at government, even when government is cruel to us and hurting us. And then he said, and that's what he closed out last week with, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles 
so that in that the thing in which you are being slandered, you are evildoers, they may become, they, that may cause of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And what he's saying here is that the day of visitation when Christ comes back, they remember who you were and how you suffered and how you were a witness to them so that they will glorify God and finally come to know Christ at the end of time. Well, that's a tough pill to speak, but notice what he says. We're the chosen people. We're the royal priesthood. So this is our task in life. And then he begins this principle. And I was, I was wrestling with this all week because it's a tough one. What is our attitude toward the government, whether we agree with it or not? And he says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And I was sitting there thinking that as an American citizen, what does that mean to me and to you? Well, let's rephrase it. Submit yourself to President Joe Biden and to the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary system and to Congress and to Governor Laura Kelly and the Kansas legislator and to the state police and to the local police and to the principal of the school that your children go to. And if you live in Wichita, Mayor Brandon Wiffle in the city council. That list could be very greatly extended here, folks. I had one guy say to me, man, that gagged me <laughs> because he was not too happy with our government. But we have to understand as we consider these truths in the scriptures that there are gonna be leaders that we are not going to trust. There's laws that we're not gonna like and I can think of many of them right now that I'm worried about. And there's taxes that we don't want to pay because there are things being paid for that I'm not in agreement with. And what is Peter's answer to me? Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And the military term of submit means for us to get in line with to stand behind it or encourage it. And I was having all these yes but debates in my mind as I was wrestling with it, but I realized this is God's word. Even to submit to those who are harsh to us. And the word harsh there is a word that we use that is supplements scoliosis, which means it's a curvature of the spine or it's out of whack or it's twisted. Even those governments. And here, Peter is talking to a people who are suffering. Submit to the authority that's been vested in human government. Ordained by God. And yet there are moments in the Bible. When we see that when government goes against God. We're given the right by God. To stand against it. To do civil disobedience. We remember. Daniel and his three friends that were told. That were to eat a certain diet. And they said no. we God has a diet for us. We don't want to eat those foods. 
And they made it and they respected the government, but they said, no, we can do better with God's way. And they showed them that. We see the civil disobedience with the apostles when in Acts chapter 4, they are hauled in and told that they're not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore before they were whipped, after they were whipped and pulled out of prison. And the disciples said, you tell us, are we to listen to God or to you? They respected the government, but they were willing to stand for what they believed and what God had told them to. And this is the rule of thumb for us in these days and challenges. But we're still to submit. That we're still to respect. And that we're still to honor the king. Now, as we look at and understand government, God ordained it for certain reason. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, the state exists simply to promote and protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in life. A husband and wife chatting by a fire. A couple of friends gathering for a game of darts at a pub. A man reading a book in his own room and digging um, <clears throat> in his own garden. That is what the state is there for, unless... They are helping to prolong and protect for such moments of these laws. Armies and courts are a waste of time. So he sees that the, the government, what it's for, and in Romans chapter 13, it tells us, yes, that it's there to protect us. It's there to help our lives along and that we're to be submissive to the government. In fact, even Jesus, when the government came to take Jesus and Peter drew his sword and hacked off the ear of the, of the servant, Jesus said, told him to put his sword back because this was the will of God that Jesus go to the cross. And government was instituted also for our good. This is what we're here. I have an interesting discussion going on with a fellow in my own life, but I've seen it before where government can be too heavy handed. And that sometimes we need to question it. But government is here to give us. And what a beautiful thing I read about John Adams uh, when he was talking about American government and the moral code that we have. He wrote that our Constitution was made only for moral religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern in any other way. Because he realized that 95% of the, the uh, Constitution of the United States has reference to the Bible. And our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, said the, the law given by Sinai was a civil and municipal as well as a moral religious code. It contains statutes of universal application, laws essential to the existence of men in society. And this is one of the fear that we have today, is that the fabric of our nation is being pulled apart because we're losing those moral codes. We're losing that. And Benjamin Rush said, by, announcing the, uh, by renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from the moorings upon which these moral subjects were made. It is only correct map of human heart that ever was published. All systems of religion, morals, and government were not found upon much must perish. And that's his own thoughts. Now, what a wonderful thing. We are called to be slaves of God. And notice we're to submit for the Lord's sake. 
So that we can show the glory of the Lord in our own life and that we honor it, not because government is so great. It can be a failure, but we honor it because Christ's sake has asked for us to follow it and to respect it, even if we disagree with it. And here the Apostle Peter tells us to not only submit to it because of the Lord's sake, but then in 14, 15, he says, by the will of God. That by doing right, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. That we live our lives in doing right to the government and in the government. That we show the ignorance of the men who may even make foolish laws. As we act as free men and we show them how it's a victory over us and not a covering for evil. I've had a going argument with a friend of mine who is a doctor and he thinks that the speeding ticket is wrong and that it's a trap and and that um, the government just uses that. And I tried to rationalize with him and understand that God's given the government to do that to protect us so that we can have people pulling out of our, our parking lot here and not getting killed with people doing 70 and 80 miles an hour. And that we can act as free men, but we need something, semblance, and that's why God's created government, to put us all together and that we could work in unity together and under the same rules so that we don't kill each other. And that's why in verse 17, as he talks about this freedom that we have to work with the government and live under the government and not using it as a cover for evil. And I told him, I said, his theology was trying to cover up his evil of wanting to drive at whatever speed he wanted. And it's wrong because that speed was set by government that's ordained by God to protect us. And so therefore, and that we're not to use our freedom as a covering for sin. And I said then in verse 17, he summarizes it beautifully for us. Notice what he says. He says, honor all people, no matter where they come from, no matter the background, no matter what they believe, we still have to honor and respect people. And that we're to love the brother, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who we're connected with. And then fear God, have this awe of God that he knows what he's doing, and then honor the king. And you see, what he's showing us is the inner reason why we submit to the government is for the Lord's sake. And that the outer reason is to be a witness to silence people who may not want to obey the laws. I can remember, and I was angry when we were building this church. And I had a government inspector come for this building. And she began to bring out certain building codes and says, I could not get into this building and get a CE, a CO, a, a certificate of occupancy, until I had certain things done. And I was asked her if we could not do one thing because of the weather and that it would kill the plants that we would plant. And she said, no, I want it done this way. And I was very angry with her, but I needed to calm down and submit to her, even though I felt she was not doing good for our church and that we would fulfill it. But evidently she had been burned several times. And she said, until you do this, which made no sense to me, that we're going to give you the CEO. So we had to comply with her requests because of other things that happened to her in the past. And even though I didn't want to, I respected her for that. And you see, I needed to be submit to her. 
You see, and now God gives us this, and he gives us an understanding of how we're to deal with the government. Our attitudes to the government should be for the Lord's sake, not for Dave's sake, not for his angry, and that it's the will of God that we subject ourselves to it and we respect it. And then he goes on and says the same thing about our work. He says, if you have an employer, and, and if you realize he's talking to slaves here, People in that day who were owned, that became Christians. Uh, one of the stories in the scriptures we find is Philemon, his friend, um, and how Onesimus uh, and their relationship as slave and slave owner, and how they're supposed to, Paul wanted them to reconcile in their relationship, especially since the one had taken off and ran away from his slave owner. And forgive him and welcome him back. And here Paul is speaking to that type of work relationship. And in our work relationships too. He says, servants, workers, be submissive to your masters and your bosses. With all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now he's talking about the person who you don't agree with and who's off the wall sometimes and got some major issues going on inside them and we're still to respect them even though they're not good and gentle. And he says, for this finds favor for the sake of the conscience towards God. A person bears up under these sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And here the apostle is showing us. He understands. There are times that we suffer for no apparent reason. Our bosses may mistreat us because they've had a bad day. Or their mind is not right and they're just angry all the time. And when you're living the Christian abundance of your life, they may not be happy with you just because of that. And he says that we're to bear up under it. Because this finds favor in God's sight. He says, and if you've done wrong, you should expect to get harsh treatment. You should expect... And that's not a big credit to you if you've done wrong and, and your boss punishes you. But also if you are being mistreated and taken care of unjustly. He says, as you still respect them. He says, you will experience God's grace in your life in his favor. The commandment is to those who are harsh. Submit. And that the promise comes to us that grace, God's grace will carry us. And that when we're threatened, we refuse to compromise our faith. We'll experience God's grace. When we suffer for what we believe and we don't complain, we're going to receive God's grace. When we're passed over for a job that we believe we should have gotten, and we refuse to get embittered by it. We get it grace from God because we know God's got a purpose in that all. Or when we're falsely accused that we don't retaliate. But that we, by God's grace, experience God's grace in our lives. That when we 
lose. We don't blow our temper up, but we experience God's grace inside of our hearts. When we face countless trials, that we count it joy, as the scripture said, because we experience in God's grace. And we do this, the reason is that we do it because of the consciousness of God, his work in our lives, and that we know he's by our side. Look at what it says here. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin. There was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he didn't utter threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his holy body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Here we see it. We see that the reason why we go through this is Christ is our example. And he helps us as we go through it. And we see it as God's appointment for our lives to be examples and to show Christ in our own lives. If we want to be somewhere else, he would have put us there. When God wants us somewhere and wants us to be his representatives, that we should look at it with Christ's eyes and that we see it in his bigger picture. Notice what he saw. Christ saw the bigger picture. He didn't commit any sin. He wasn't dying there for himself. He was dying there for us. And yet he had nothing coming out of his mouth. He was not spewing and reviling. He could have easily said, you wait until I see you in eternity. You're going to be taken out. He didn't. Instead, he trusted God and knew that he was doing it for a purpose. God's purpose to bring healing to the people, us, and give us eternal life. Even though he never took part in any of this. But because he went to the cross and took on our shame and our sin that he believed that the purpose was true in eternity with God the Father, that he would die for us. And so in doing so, he trusted himself to the plan that God had for him. And that's what we need to do as we go through the difficulties in our life, to trust God, that he has us in this place and in this trial for his plan and purpose to be a witness to the glory and greatness of God. That we know that he has us by his hand. And that as we go into these difficult challenges, as we go through these trials, that we are following God's way. You know, Christians, Christ suffered innocently. And because of that, we at times will suffer innocently. And that he is our example, but we're his chosen child. In the midst of that crisis, put there, bought by him, so that you and I can reveal him in a very ugly situation. And we can follow him. And that as we go through it, 
and we suffer patiently. Following what Christ did, we don't retaliate. We don't curse. We don't threaten. When we're spit at, we don't spit back. He didn't do that. When we're swore at, we don't swear. Instead, we trust him. As his faith and his father's will, so are our faith trusting in his will for our lives as we go through that. And we follow him and the way he dealt with it, patiently trusting the will of his father. And that, my friends, is not easy. Whether it be government or situations at work or difficulties at home or difficulties in our personal life, whatever it is, trusting and following his way and will as we walk through these things is so important. I can remember as a child learning how to write script. And I remember we were given by the teacher patterns in which we laid our paper on what she had written. And then we trace over and follow her way of doing script. And it's the same thing with us. We have to do the same thing with Christ. Follow his pattern. Entrusting the overall eternal plan of God. And walking through it as Christ walked through it. And tracing over his life. Charles Sheldon in his book, Following in Jesus' Footsteps. Maybe you've read it. But one of the things that he talks about is doing what Jesus did. And that's our challenge. As we walk through these things in life. How do I follow Christ's way? How do I live through these terrible times? These persecutions? Maybe these wrong attitudes? Maybe even dealing with the things that I don't like in this life that are wrong even in God's eyes. But how do I make it through them? It's by trusting him. And in the power of the Holy Spirit following his pattern as we get through them. And trace his way. Let's pray together. Father, this has been a difficult sermon today. And I know how difficult it is for each one of us. There are things in our lives that are not right. People may not treat us well. Things may not be the way we want them to be. But Lord, we pray that no matter what comes our way, that we can trust you and that we can walk in the way that you walked and that we can love even those who are enemies that we can be proclaimed at the end in their lives and they can see what makes us so different. Jesus, I pray for these brothers and sisters right now, the challenges that they have. Help them to walk them in your strength and by your faith conquer them through your power. And it's in your name I pray this, Jesus. Amen. At this time, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. The Bible 
speaks to us and says, Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, this Holy Supper, which we're about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance and communion and of hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and fulfill all obedience to the divine law, even the bitter and shameful death on the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we be accepted by God and never be forsaken by him. Secondly, that we come and have communion with the same Christ who's promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us in the eternal life. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we're to bear fruit. And thirdly, he comes to us in hope, believing that the bread and the cup are a pledge and a foretaste of the feast of love, which we will partake when his kingdom fully comes, when with unveiled face we'll see him, made like unto him in all his glory. Since by his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has obtained for us this life-giving spirit who unites us all in one body, so are we to receive the supper in true loving care, mindful of the communion of the saints. Come, for all things are now ready. The Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me, though he shall die, yet shall he live. The body of Jesus Christ. like manner also Jesus took the cup when he had supped he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me
remembrance of the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder that our sins have been forgiven. They've been washed away by your blood. As you say in your word, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as wool. And that you will remember our sins no more. Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace that gave us that. And your mercy that didn't give us what we deserve, but instead gave us the washing, the cleansing, the forgiveness forever. We give you praise and glory. Through you, Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Let's stand together and let's close with our benediction. We will sing our closing hymn. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours now and forever. Amen.